Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This week's guest is one of the funniest stand-up comedians working today, and she is long past due for the recognition she deserves. Let me tell you guys something. I know this is going to sound weird, but I never understood how my grandfather stayed hard. I Just hear me out. Because Viagra wasn't around then, okay? And he could not get a word in. He was controlled for years. He would walk around to somebody help me. Somebody rescue me from this hell. I'm in prison. Please. And my grandmother was very aggressive. Like, she would just go to a funeral and be like, sorry for your loss. You know what I mean? It was a lot. So I feel like she would just make it hard for him. You know what I'm saying? Like, she would just bend. Let me act it out, because I know a lot of you want to see it. She would just bend over a little bit and, you know, and just talk the whole time. Like, Herman, I'm not bending over anymore. Find the hole. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and today I am joined by a true comics comic, Jessica Curson. Jessica is a mainstay at the Comedy Cellar in New York. But for the past nine months, like every other comedian in the country, she has been forced out of the clubs and into the new frontiers of stand-up, like outdoor parks, drive-in theaters, and, of course, Zoom. And Jessica has adapted to this new world better than most, including in her upcoming live stream show called Disgusting Hawk, a title she helpfully explains to me during our conversation. We also talk about how comedian and previous Last Laugh guest Bill Burr helped Jessica land her first hour-long special on Comedy Central called Talking to Myself after years of rejection from networks. She suspects that had she fit a younger, prettier mold, she may not have had to wait so long. All right, let's just get into it. This is me with Jessica Curson. So we talked, I don't know if you remember this, about in March on the phone, just like a couple weeks into this, uh, you know, shutdown and everything, when I was talking to a bunch of different comedians for a piece I was writing about just how it seemed like comedy might be affected by this pandemic. You know, at that time you were telling me, you know, that it was already, I think it had only been two weeks and it was like the longest you'd gone without performing in, in, you know, years. Now that it's been like nine months, how are you doing? It's really bad. I mean, I'm very honest. You know, some people will be like, well, yeah, it's tough, but it's it's really hard for me. It's hard for all my friends. I mean, to speak for myself, like every weekend has been canceled, kind of been waiting week to week to see what's happening, what's not. I have some stuff booked in January, but who even knows if that's going to happen. And besides all of that, it's like my therapy has been taken away, my, my art, like the thing I love most. So it's been, it's been a huge loss. Like I've experienced it like a death, not a death because it can come back. So that's not like my career is in a coma, my art. My, and it's been hard. It's really hard because we're trying to do it in different ways. Like I've been doing a weekly show with Rachel Feinstein on Zoom and, uh, you know, I'm doing some stuff, like I'm doing something outside in New York City tonight, which is probably going to be cold, but yeah. 
I'm doing it. And then I'm, I'm doing two things outside tonight. And that's going to only last a couple more weeks, probably. So yeah. I mean, wh- how has it been doing the stuff on Zoom? Because it seems like it's, it's very challenging to, uh, to connect with audiences in that way when you're used to being, you know, in the room with them and you talk to the audience a lot in your act. And what has that been like? You know, I've made it work because I have been able to make some money doing that and I have children. You got to figure it out. <laughs> yeah, I have to do it. I mean, it's not, I have to. So, but luckily I, I it's funny because I do crowd work on the Zoom shows, which is even funnier than me doing it in the, in the <laughs> audience live because everyone can see the person's face. So it really gets laughs when I do crowd work. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you have like close-ups on everyone in the audience. Oh, hysterical. I'm like, Dave, could you please pay attention to me? Like, <laughs> I, you know, and then people crack up because they see Dave's face. Uh, That's funny. And also I'm very facial. Like my act is a lot of faces and voices and that kind of stuff. So people, it's gotten a pretty good response. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they can really see you up close, whereas in a club or at a theater, you know, someone might not be able to to see your yeah. face as closely as they can. That's interesting that there are benefits to it as well. What do you, what do you feel like you miss the most about being in clubs and being, you know, doing live performance with with people in the room? Well, I really miss the whole thing, like going there, seeing people I love, you know, like I'm so close with so many comics and they're like my family, my second family. So I miss that. I miss hanging out with them and laughing and hugging them and talking about stand up, talking about life. And I miss the energy. I think that's what I miss the most. It's like that energy in a comedy club of just, oh my God, like people are telling jokes and there's laughing and there's drinks being served and it's a whole thing. That's what I miss the most. I don't know when is going to be the next time where you can really do stand up on a continuous basis without something shielding you to a New York crowd. I don't know. I think that's going to take a while. Yeah, I think even even with a vaccine, people are going to be really hesitant to to crowd back into rooms the way they used to without thinking about it. And they're doing this thing where they I don't know if you saw it like they have something at the cellar where there's like a there's a, like a lucite box around you. It's like a telephone. <laughs> I haven't seen that. Yeah, I did one show at Governor's Comedy Club on Long Island with that. I um Dave Attell asked me to come do shows with him one weekend and it was it was in Mar it was like I think it was just in like the end of March or beginning of April. And it was the strangest thing to have plastic, you know, walls around me. The whole thing about stand-up for me is the connection, feeling connected to people. And it, it was weird. It's like there's literally it was a wall up. Yeah, that that is very weird. I know that there's also people have been doing these drive-in shows and like Colin Quinn just did this this drive-in special. And that seems like you're the the amount of remove between you and people who are in cars, I can't even imagine. Have you done that at all? Or I have. I've done it's so crazy. I've done it like the a di- like the back of a diner in Queens, which is like I'm literally standing on a small stage next to like garbage bags and and then there's just cars in front of me and they're just, you know, honking or flashing their light. I mean, it's so crazy. Like it's a lot of comics have done these incredible situations. Like a ton of them did these shows in the park where they had no mic and they, and I just, I'd rather do a zoom show than do that. It's so depressing to me. Yeah. To just stand in the the middle of a park and tell jokes, but I get why people are doing it. So I know you have this live stream show coming up on uh, Thursday, December 10th, and it's called disgusting Hawk. First of all, what, what is that? What is that title? I know that's why everyone always is like, what is going on? So I was on Bonfire, the podcast with Big 
Okerson and Dan Soder for Comedy Central. I'm serious. And they showed me a clip of some YouTuber, Mo Dean. He's in England and he's like, yo, this is Mo Dean. Like he does this <laughs> whole beat. I think he's, I don't know what he is, but we were all making fun of him. And then he did a whole video back at us and was calling me a disgusting hog. <laughs> but it sounded like hog because of his accent. He's like, he's this disgusting hog, you know? And so the whole episode of Bonfire became us just making all these jokes. I mean, people have said it's probably one of the funniest ones they ever did because we were like, just, we were describing it as like I was a hawk on stage. And if like, if you, <laughs> If you heckled me, I'd pick you up and drop you off somewhere. It was, so, you know, Jay's like, we put paper down under her when she performed. And it just became <laughs> this ongoing thing. So all of these fans on so many podcasts started calling me the hawk, the disgusting hawk, like a hashtag. And I I took it on and I just was like, this is so I, I have a new podcast coming out also called The Disgusting Hawk on Gas Digital. <laughs> and, you know, I just love the name. Um, one of the fans came up with artwork with my face and the saw it probably hysterical. I saw that. Yeah. The live show itself is going to be something very different because I'm I'm going to have some guests, but I'm I'm doing character stuff, which I again, that I can't do. I mean, I can do it, but I don't do that a lot when I'm in the comedy club. So, you know, it, my new podcast and this live stream show are me doing characters, interviewing people. Oh, wow. Um, and is that something that you just sort of like started developing more when you when you had the time at home? Yeah. Or how, how did, how did <laughs> when that... you had nothing to do. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, I've always done characters like Rachel Feinstein and I have always done these Yentas characters, like two old Jewish women and go around. We have tons of videos on YouTube and my passion, even more than stand-up, was always character work, like sketch work. And I've been ordering wigs and all kinds of things from Amazon, <laughs> and I just do all these different characters. And people love it because it's different. And for this live stream show, is it the same kind of thing with, with Zoom, where you'll have the audience there that you can actually see and interact with? Or, yeah. And you perform just in your in your house and you have your guests on virtually? Yeah. So I'm going to be doing some live from the house. Some will be pre-recorded stuff that I've done with people. And there'll be all different kinds of things. And then there'll be a Q&A after. But the great thing about, which I pride myself on in my shows, in my stand-up, in my character work, is you never know what to expect. It's not, you know, I don't, I don't do a typical, I'm not a typical performer, whereas people will see all kinds of stuff. And I, and I do love dealing with the crowd in the moment. So that's always something different. Yeah. So, I mean, we're, we're talking, it's December and it's, it's about a year, I think, since your last, since your special came out, Talking to Myself, which was a really great special for anyone who Thank hasn't you. seen it. So it's called Talking to Myself because periodically, and you do this, you know, in your act before, and then a lot in the special is you'll turn around, uh, you put your back to the audience and start talking to yourself during your set. So how is that something that you started doing and, and why do you, why do you do it? And why did you decide to, you know, really make that a big part of your special? Well, you know, what's interesting. You're saying that it's like, I can't do that on on Zoom, which is one of my, it's my signature thing. So, cause it would be crazy. I mean, I can do it, but it's not going to get lit. People will think I need to be in a mental institution. <laughs> if I'm just talking on a Zoom show and I turn around and start having a whole talk, you know, conversation with myself. But basically um, I wasn't doing well one night years ago. And I just, at sometimes I would just, you know, put my hand over my head and just be like, it's okay, Jessica. But like, I eventually just started going into my own thing and turning around and like huddling over and having like an internal monologue talk. 
like, who cares what these people think? You chose this. You're not a victim. Like, I have this whole talk with myself. And it didn't get laughs for a long time. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Is at first, did people think you were crazy? Yes. They were like, what is going on? I'm like, it's very creative. Just <laughs> you, know, you don't get it. It's Believe creative. me. Yeah. But basically... I realized I have to do it. Like, I can't do it if something kills. You know, if like if I do a joke and it kills and people are dying laughing, it's weird if I turn around and start motivating myself. And so it really has to do when there it has to be when there's like a tense moment or a joke doesn't work. Like if I get heckled, I now turn around and I'm like, this person has problems. You don't know what they've gone through. <laughs> it's not about you. Like, so it, it it has to be when there's some like kind of yeah. like stress in the room, like tension. It's a great way to diffuse that that tension is to yeah start talking to yourself instead of confronting the heckler, which is what most people's instinct is probably to do. Yeah, and I don't normally do it anymore, but when I'm really burnt out, which I'm not now, that's when I'm doing like three, four, five times a night. You know, I'm just like comedied out, and someone heckles me. It's it can be rough on them. But I don't love doing it anyway. It's just a waste of energy. Mm -hmm. Talking to yourself, since it's something that can only happen when there's some kind of tension in the room or something's not working, it's not necessarily something you can prepare in the same way as your act, which you write and perform. So in terms of doing it in the special, was that a consideration at all to say it may or may not work? Yeah. So that's what I do. I mean, that's why I was saying even the live stream show, I might do something that's not expected at all. I mean, that's my thing. I, I don't, I, I don't have a plan a lot of the time. And I, in the special, I just said, you should have a camera behind me or across from me because uh, there will be times when I turn around and have a conversation with myself. And um, they wanted to use, it's interesting. The director wanted to use shots of my face, like the camera on my face while I was talking to myself. And, you know, uh, Al Magical and Bill Burr and I decided it's it doesn't work because the really the the thing is is it's my own thing and you don't like you don't want to bring the audience into that into my face while I'm doing it so and it really changes the experience of what the audience is is experiencing exactly. yeah but on the Tonight Show which I did the end of December because when you just asked me that question it reminded me of this. I had, I told that, you know, you tell them your exact set and it has to be approved word for word. And I did it, a joke didn't work, which I knew wasn't going to work, but they told me to do it. And I knew, I was like, I knew it wasn't going to work. And I turned around again and they didn't know I was going to do that. So even on the Tonight Show, <laughs> I turned around and said, you knew that joke wasn't going to work. You should have listened to your gut. Like, you know, and it got a huge laugh, but that wasn't even planned. So... I do a lot of shows in Florida for very old people. Most of them are 80, 90, some have passed. And I have to make them laugh. And they all have the same face, even when they're saying something positive. It's gorgeous outside. Look at this weather. The sun is out. The test came back negative. I'm gonna live. They talk during the whole show because they can't stop talking. And they talk loud because they're deaf. This is totally true. So I'll be in the middle of my act and I'll hear them having a whole conversation. Like, did she just say she's from New Jersey? I think she did say she's from New Jersey. What part of New Jersey? Do you think she knows the Eisensteins? Thank you. They sound like cats being assaulted. Just, ah! Ah! 
You knew that tagline wasn't gonna work. And you did it anyway. Don't sabotage yourself. You deserve success. It's all gonna be okay. You just ate a bag of chips and told yourself it was a serving of corn. On those shows where they really like want to know exactly what you're going to say, when you veer off of it, do you hear from them afterwards or do they, if it goes well, they don't, they don't give you a hard time about it? Yeah, no, he literally said to me, the booker said that was my favorite part of the whole thing. <laughs> and even when I did the Tonight Show the first time with Leno, because I've done it three times, but the first time the crowd wasn't laughing. I said, if you don't laugh at me, I'm going to do a body dive into you. And it, <laughs> it killed, but that wasn't planned. Like I just, I, and that's the kind of comedy I die laughing at is sometimes just wacky like you know like robin williams kind of i mean he was much wackier but you just yeah. never knew what was gonna happen yeah it's funny on those shows the way they they want it to be so set in stone when like that's not really what comedy i know what makes the best comedy and it's like the time limit is very specific too right it's very it's four and a half minutes and it's like that's scary because if you go uh, like 30 seconds over, they'll cut the mic. Also, a lot of the time when I've done late night, you don't know when you're standing there. Forget about even before the show, but when you're standing at the curtain waiting to go on, you don't even know if there's going to be time for you to go to the couch or not. Do you know how stressful that is? <laughs> so you do your set and then you're like, am I going to the couch? Not but you just have to deal with it and wonder. Did you go to the couch with the with Leno the first time? I didn't the first time. I did the second time. And then I went with um, Fallon the third time. With Fallon. Yeah. And that was like the classic thing with Johnny Carson, right? Was who's going to get called over to the couch or who's going <laughs> to get the, the A-OK. <laughs> but now it's like, it's amazing. You can, you do the Tonight Show and literally it's good. You get a good take. Yeah. But, but, that's, but it's not, it's not going to change your career. Nothing. I mean, it helps a little but you don't get mm -hmm. a huge following. It's not like that. Yeah, they can put Tonight Show at the comedy club next to your next to your name. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right. And it could be like a show you did at a barn yeah. in Jersey. Yeah. Um, you know, you this special that you had last year, you know, it's it I think it was to me it was like long overdue for you to get a special like this. I was looking at your Twitter and you you have this tweet pinned. I can read it, or if you wanted to read it, you could, but... Oh, you um, can read it. I don't have it in front of me, but... Yeah, so it says, I'm so grateful that I was not given things early in my career. I've had to work so hard, like so many of my friends. There's constant rejection. It's made me dead inside, which has made me funnier. And so that's your that's your pinned tweet. And I think it says a lot about, you know, that you weren't given things early on and you had to really, you know, work hard for them. But do you feel... Did you feel like it was overdue to get a special like this? You know, I think especially thinking about men in this business who have been around as long as you have maybe have had you know five or six specials what was your feeling about that when you when you got the when you got the opportunity to do this I felt that it was long overdue I I'm very realistic you know some people are like I should be doing this I should have this I, that was the one thing I was like this is ridiculous I'd been doing it what 19 years at the time I got it I've been now I'm in my 21st year or 22nd, I don't even know. And it's like, it was crazy to me that no one was giving me a special. And I don't know, sometimes I feel like it's the man woman thing. And sometimes I feel like it's like the kind of woman. Does mm -hmm. that make sense to you? Like I'm oh, not, Yeah. I was never the hot, skinny, flirtatious female comedian. So I was just funny. And it's taken longer, I think, because if someone had my 
humor, like my, the, what I, what I'm able to do, believe me, I'm f- f- for anyone listening to this, I am filled with self-hatred. Like it's <laughs> not, it's, it's gr- like, it's coming out of my skin, but I do do well when I do stand up and people laugh a lot and people like what I do. And I have a very good response. So it's like, I think that if I look different and sold myself differently and had a different thing going on, the you know, with the way I carried myself, it I would have four or five specials. Yeah. I mean, there must have been moments during your career where you were seeing, you know, these young, you know, traditionally beautiful women getting, uh, you know, opportunities that you weren't getting. And I'm sure that couldn't have been easy. It's it's not it's not something I got very upset about because I think I just like know the business and I'm like, whatever, this business is ridiculous. It, it's ridiculous because the funny thing is, is that men really respond to my comedy. So I feel like they would love the four or five specials that I d- would have done. It's more the industry. So many of them are so dumb. They really think they know what people want. And a lot of times they're way off the mark when it comes to stand up and, and other things too. But with stand-up, it's it's interesting to me. That's why so many people that are doing it on their own now and promoting themselves and having their own businesses are skyrocketing. Yeah, when the, the gatekeeper is telling them, that allowing exactly. them to do it. or And they don't even know what they're talking about a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. They really don't. Yeah. What was it this time that made it so that you could do the special? I mean, what was the deciding factor? It was Bill Burr. Literally, I did a show with him in a theater for 2,500 people. It was the Patrice O'Neill benefit. I went up in the show with him and Attell, like all these people were on the show, like huge comics, amazing. And I think it was one of the best sets I ever had, which I've done tens of thousands of shows, like over the years, I, I can't even... And I just, it, it clicked. What made it so, so great? I don't know. I just, I was at a point in my career where I was like, just didn't care anymore. And was like, fuck it. And I, I went up like, oh, who gives a shit when any of you think of me? Like they were cracking. I knew the crowd. I knew the, it was like that bonfire crowd that those men that follow me now and are like literally going to be following my podcast and everything. It's funny because it's a lot of men. And he just saw me and was like, what the hell He's like, when did you get so good? I said, you haven't seen me since Boston Comedy Club in New York City, like 18 years ago. I mean, I said, this is what I do, you know? And he called me two months later and was like, you deserve a special. This is ridiculous. I'm producing it. Do you want to do it? And I was like, sure. But it's it was for Comedy Central and they were great, but they were all of a sudden fell in love with me. And, you know, it's like I've been around the whole time. It took this, you know, famous male comic saying, pay attention to her to make them pay attention to you. Exactly. That's, that is what happened. Mm, that, yeah, that's crazy. And that's what happens all the time in this bit. Like, and then all of a sudden they love you. Oh, we love Jessica. It's, mm-hmm. I mean, no, you weren't paying attention. You were, you know, it, it's, that's the frustrating part. Mm-hmm. Um, had you worked with Comedy Central on stuff before? Like you, you hadn't done the roasts or anything? No, I had only done Premium Blend, which it took so much for my manager to get me on that. It was ridiculous. That was like a seven minute set probably 15 years ago. And I did one other little thing. And I, that was very, I saw a lot of people I knew, a lot of people have been doing it half the time on Comedy Central over and over. And I'm like, use different people, give people opportunities. And then once I got the special, they put me on 50 things. So that's the hard part. That's why I think you have to really take things into your own hands now. I mean, I really do. I have stuff going on with networks. Like I have a deal with NBC Peacock. 
to write a script with Bonnie McFarlane and film a pilot. And it's all about my life. So that's cool. I think some people will, you know, are smart and will get it and give people opportunities. And then some people still think they know what people want. And it's, it's off mark. I mean, look at all these sitcoms that don't work. And like, whenever they get involved, it goes wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And whenever they give people the freedom to actually do something that they believe in, it it, more often than not goes right. Totally. I mean, you really think about it. That's true. In terms of working with, with Bill on the, you know, on the special and him, you know, producing it and presenting it, was that something where he was just, you know, kind of putting his name on you and getting you in the door? Or were you actually like working with him, um, on material or uh, was was he involved much in it? Yeah. I mean, Bill has been so good to me. He really did a lot. You know, I had questions for him. Should I do this? Should I? I mean, his sole thing was do whatever the fuck you want and stop worrying what they think because they don't know what they're talking about. And And I listened to him and just did it and it worked out great. I mean, it could not have gone better. But I learned a lot from Bill that he really does not care <laughs> yeah. uh, while he's performing. I get that. And whether you like his material, not you, but I'm saying whether someone likes his material or doesn't, he is very smart that he just commits to it because he it's a sales thing. I mean, I always, I taught stand-up for years and I would say, yeah, and I would say to my students, you're selling yourself, you're, you're your own business. You're a salesperson, so you're selling jokes. So if you go up confident and like, you got to buy this product, it's the best you've ever, people are going to buy it. And I learned that from him. I respect people that just stick to what, the, even if I don't agree with it, I, I, I think it's important to commit to what you believe and what you want to say. Yeah, Bill's a, yeah, he's a really interesting guy. And he was on this podcast last year and we had a really great conversation. I think he's a lot more thoughtful than people probably give him credit for. He really is. Because he also does a thing where he kind of deliberately stirs up controversy sometimes. Thinking about like the his SNL monologue a couple months ago. I don't know if you watched that, um, but that got a lot of blowback because he had a lot of jokes about gay pride parade and, and that kind of stuff and, and pride month. How do you kind of reconcile? I mean, and you said you don't always agree with him, but what did you make of that uh, monologue? And what do you think of, you know, some of that stuff that he's doing where he is does feel like he's trying to push people in that way? Well, I think because I know him so well, it, it doesn't... I- I don't get offended because he's such a caring, loving, accepting person. I mean, he could not be more accepting of my gay marriage and me having children. And so he is one of those comics who likes to enjoys getting getting people riled up, which is what so many people do on Twitter. They won't do it live in a stand-up set, but they'll do it on Twitter all day long. I do get concerned with with a lot of comics and things they say. I have a lot of friends right now where I'm like, oh my God, did he really say that or tweet that? Or, but <laughs> It's so hard because if you start saying, well, he shouldn't say that and she shouldn't say this, it's like, where is the line? You can't do it. Like, that's my personal opinion. You can't, because there's so many things I say. For example, I'm Jewish and I make fun of my family. I make fun of the traditions. I make fun of us being whiny and complaining. And you know what? Like, sometimes people will get offended by that. And I'm like, that's my experience. That's my life. It's my feeling. How can you, it's a hard thing. There are some comics, I will tell you, not Bill, but there are some comics where I literally could not speak to them again. I still think they should be able to say what they want to say, even if it makes me sick. There's a couple of guys where I'm like, can't do it. You probably don't want to name them, but you can if you want to. But (laughs) so right wing, so homophobic, anti-Semitic. 
They hate women. I can't even listen to, I, I won't, and I won't co-sign it, but I say this person should be in jail or arrested. What are you going to do with them? No, it is what it is. It's art. It's stand-up. You don't want people telling you what you can and cannot say. I don't. I really don't. And if someone gets offended, then I just, I'm literally in a, in a nice way. I don't even mean it. I'm like, just please don't listen to me. Like, it's okay. I get that this might be offensive to you or whatever, but then don't listen to me. From me, it's only coming from a loving, silly place. For these other people, I don't think that. Like anyone where I think it's coming from a nasty, mean-spirited place, I'm not okay with it at all. Coming up, Jessica explains how she became Robert De Niro's comedy mentor. It's an insane story that she still can't quite believe actually happened. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So what do you remember about the very first time you, you got on stage to perform jokes? Well, that's interesting. I took a six-week class. I could not have done it unless I took a class. Like, I'm amazed by people who could just do an open mic. I was absolutely petrified. But knew that it was something that you wanted to do? It wasn't at all. <laughs> I've told this story, but I was sitting with my cousins and my sister at a restaurant and my grandmother was staring at me and she was, you know, nodding her head and she goes, come over here, you know, with her finger. I went over and she goes, you need to be a comedian. <laughs> Every time you're sitting with your, the kids, they're laughing. Everyone laughs at you. You need to do stand-up comedy. I said, Nanny, I could never stand in front of you. Yes, you can. You listen to me. I'm your grandmother. So I was looking in, and I was lost at that point in my life. I was going to NYU for a master's in social work, and I just didn't really even want to do that. Um, and I looked in the back of the Village Voice, and there was a class. And I said, oh, I'll call. And that was great because I went to a six-week class. I learned how to hold a microphone, how to say something for five minutes. And the first time I performed was at Caroline's. I mean, it's so crazy. Is that part of the class, like the end of the class or one of those things? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So that's the graduation. But it was so insane at the time. I had like 35 friends and family there. They were always, <laughs> they were all in front. That sounds intimidating. It was. I mean, it made me more nervous. I'd be like, I don't want anyone there that I know. <laughs> I know. I it's very hard to perform when you know people, the audience. I mean, I didn't know that then. But I pulled it off. And I was really proud of myself that I did it. And then I, you're going to laugh, but this is true. And I'm sure you'll relate to this. It felt horrible, meaning it was so uncomfortable and made me so like cringe and I, that I wanted 
to do it again. Because <laughs> I'm so like, I like being in angst. That's who I am. I'll always be. And so I did an open, I did open mics and boy, oh boy, was that rough. Yeah. Oh a lot of, I feel like I hear more often than not that the first time goes like decently well. And then the next 25 times are yeah. a disaster. <laughs> Horrible. That's exactly right. It's so I, funny. I wonder why that is. I think because, well, first of all, a lot of times they're like, this next performer has never performed before. But people <laughs> yeah. are really nice. And then the next thing you know, you're in like a deli on a wood plank telling jokes for people who don't even speak English. I mean, it's it, the open mics were something else. And I feel like now I'm doing open mics, like some of these outdoor shows, rooftops, and they're like open mics. Yeah. It seems like the comedy cellar became a home for you at a certain point. How did that happen? What was the, what was the process of, of getting into the comedy cellar? Oh, this is great because I did the comedy cellar. I did a new talent show. It had nothing to do with them booking it. And Esty, the booker saw me and she goes, Oh, you're so funny. You come Friday night and audition for me. I had like one and a half minutes of material. And I'm like, oh, okay, sure. Yeah, you didn't really know what that meant? I had no idea. I was like, oh, okay, great. I'll get more stage time. I was so new and I had this little recorder. I mean, it's so funny that I did this. A lot of people might get this, but I came Friday night. I went up to Mitch Fattel, who's a comic who used to play there all the time. I was on between Mitch Fattel and Dave Attell. And I handed Mitch my little recorder. I mean, I was like, can you press record when I, I mean, it was so ridiculous. (laughs) And I was up for a minute and it was like, oh, this is not, not working. So Esty gave me that and she goes, oh, no, no, you're not ready. You, I was not ready. She should have never (laughs) even thrown me to the wolves. She saw something though. Exactly. So I went back like a year later and she's like, okay, I, I don't know about you, but I throw you on a late night. I put you on late night. When she said late, that meant late. Like I was on every night at 1.30, 2, 2.30. They had shows until three in the morning It for a year. And I was finally said to her, Esty, I love performing here, but I'm doing well. I can't, can I go on a little early? Then I would get like 12.30, one o'clock spots for a year. You know, I didn't have like an easy ride in there, but I just so jived with that club and their audiences. And that's just, oh my God, there's no better place to do stand up. I mean, anywhere. What is it about that place for, for anyone who hasn't been there that makes it like that for you? The Comedy Cellar is like, everything that stand-up is like if you go there you're gonna see the best comics in the world literally there's people from all over the world that come there and perform and that are famous in other countries you'll be able to watch the best stand-up and and just it's incredible the staff is the best staff i mean they're they're so attentive to the comedians there's an area where they you know only comedians sit which you know like is a reserved area and and they 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 shield you they protect you they they keep people away they take such good care of you and then the security is the best i mean there's no security like there is there um if you get heckled their people are out or they're warned and then they're out and it's very much a family environment i mean they love stand up and the audiences are groomed for stand up it's like they come every week a lot of them and they just know good stand up and they laugh at so many things it's just incredible energy. I went there a week ago just to say hi to a couple of people there. And I walked in and I was like, this is so depressing. Yeah. Just to see it empty. And 
uh, it was empty. It was cold in there. And it was just like, I just felt so sad. Like, oh my God, I mean, this is what it is. And we have to isolate, you know, we can't hang out and do this, but I can't wait to get back to it. Mm -hmm. The comedy seller has now been sort of like immortalized in all these different ways on in television and movies, <laughs> um, including in The Comedian, which I wanted to ask you about, which is this movie that you worked on with uh, Robert De Niro and kind of became this this big story around then that you were his his comedy whisperer, his his comedy mentor for this role that he played. Can you tell the story? Uh, I know you've told it before, but of, of how the, how you ended up being Robert De Niro's uh, comedy mentor. I love this story, and this is like this is something that happened to me that hasn't happened to anyone else. So it's like, yeah, it took me a while to get a special, but this is even more insane to me. I, I was performing, I don't know, on like a Tuesday night in at the cellar late. And he, De Niro was in the audience with Taylor Hackford, who's a director, huge director. And I had heard he was there. And I was like, I couldn't see if he was. And I didn't know. Sometimes you hear someone's there. They're not there. But I, I did my show and I tailored it to him in a way where like um, I, I did the turning around thing. And I said, it doesn't matter who's here. You're not going to get anything. Like I did this whole inside joke kind of thing, like nothing's going to ever work out. You need to stop eating bread. Like I was having this whole, <laughs> someone told me that he was dying laughing. Like they were all dying laughing. I went to Florida that weekend. I'm at my father's condo in Delray. I'm do I'm about to do a show for, you know, 90-year-olds. Just so depressing when you go away <laughs> by yourself and you know it's going to be a tough audience and a and it was Taylor Hackford and he's like, "Hi Jessica, this is Taylor Hackford." I'm like, "Hi." I had no idea who he was. I mean, yeah, he was huge. Like he he directed Officer and a Gentleman, Ray, like a ton of movies. And um, he's like, Bob would like to meet with you on Wednesday. And I'm like, Bob who? Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, Bob De Niro. And I'm like, okay. I, oh. I was just shocked. I was like, what? And it was like, it wasn't real. And then I went there and I walked in and I looked at him and it was like, it was just a friend. I can't, it was the weirdest thing. I had no, I wasn't starstruck. Mm, you felt a connection? hundred percent. And I sat with him and they wanted to meet with me to put me in one of the scenes but he really, we connected a lot to each other. And during that time, we're sitting there, Harvey Keitel walks in. He's like, Bob, you like this wig? They might put me in a wig. <laughs> Danny DeVito was in the office. I mean, it, I was like, I literally feel like I'm on something right now. That's crazy. But to make a very long story as short as I can, what ended up happening is the next day I met him in the morning at his apartment and I taught him how to do stand up. And I became, not only did I teach him every day to do stand-up, I ended up writing for the film. I ended up directing some scenes because he wanted me to think of ideas. I mean, it's really crazy. Yeah, that is wild. What was what was the process of teaching him to do stand-up like? It was tough. I mean, I also got a producer credit, which is amazing. He said it's the hardest thing he's ever done. Can you believe that? Of all, That's, the Yeah, that seems crazy. <laughs> he's done a lot of things. Because he had to seemed like he had been doing stand-up for 36 years. And that's tough. Like that, that confidence that you really, and he was in live, you know, sometimes we would just have some shows and put him up just so he could keep practicing. Yeah, which must've been strange too, because it's not like the audience is, doesn't know who he is. No, and he was playing a character. Like if he did it as the Bob I know, like in his dry sense of humor and sarcastic, he would have ripped the room apart. But he had to play this cocky, you know, energetic. It just wasn't him, you know, wasn't mm -hmm. him, but he was, he was acting. 
Right. But it was, I have to tell you to see him, to be in like, to be in a scene with him, Patty Lapone, Danny DeVito, Harvey Keitel, to watch them act. It just was insane. Mm -hmm. What were the sort of some of the big pieces of advice that you gave him in terms of how to, how to do it, how to be a comedian? Well, I, you know, I made it very clear to him that he has to seem confident, even if he's freaking out, literally from second he's standing on the side of the stage because I said it's even going to matter with the the actors in the audience I said you you know we have to film stand-up so you have to literally just sell yourself and not look nervous and I talked to him a lot about body language because that's very important I believe on stage and I also helped him a lot not just with stand-up but his love interest was Leslie Mann who I became very friendly with and I helped them make their love relationship seem real. Isn't that nuts? Like, I <laughs> Did this experience make you want to uh, direct or get it more into film and that kind of stuff? Yeah. Leslie's like, Jessica, I can't connect. I, I, Bob's gorgeous. I, he's just, he's older. It's like, we're, I said, so Bob is like, Jessica, come in the room with Leslie and I. And I sat on a bed with them and I told them what they should do to connect more. And they did in the scene. So like when I watched the movie, I'm like, I thought of that. <laughs> She could have gotten a director credit too. I know. I did like directing a lot and I love producing. And I that's why I'm excited about this new project because I'm executive producing it and I can be really involved. I love that scene in the movie too, where you're performing on stage and he comes in with Leslie Mann and you kind of, and you start kind of heckling them in the audience. I mean, that must've been kind of a trip to, to film that at the cellar with all, with all those, you know, people. Um, and there's some good improv in there too, where she starts talking about ass cream and it's all improv. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was, I said to him, if you don't keep that in the movie, I can't speak to any of you because they weren't going to keep it in. I'm like, that oh, was really? completely yeah. you can tell it's such a real moment. Yeah. And I kept Bob kept saying, cut Jessica, what from across the room at the comedy cellar? He's like, What do you think? You think I should say this? You think I should then <laughs> like, no, Bob, I think it and so my friends who were there in the audience freaked out because they were like, I can't believe that Robert De Niro is asking you for advice while you're on stage performing and you're ad libbing with him. Like it was cra it was nuts. But it was it's the one, it's something I think about a lot. I'm like, this is, this is by far probably the biggest thing I ever did in my career. Isn't it adorable when celebrities bring their hookers to the club? <laughs> Jackie Burke's in the crowd. After everything I've done for you, I was there for you when you were starting out as a young man. <laughs> Is it through Leslie Mann that you that you ended up sort of connecting with Jed Apatow because you've you've done on some stuff on uh, Crashing and then uh, King of Staten Island? Yeah, um, that is how I, Leslie and I really connected. Judd helped out with the comedian and when he was around, and we did some editing together. Um, and of course, I connected with him too. He's he's another one like Robert De Niro, like Leslie. They're just down to earth. They're, they really are, and. Uh, I just connected with him too. And then he has given me some opportunities, which have been amazing. I mean, the crashing thing was honestly the most fun because I was able to play myself and I could improv a lot and that was going great. And then it was canceled. I'm like, Oh, you gotta be kidding. No, I really like that show a lot. Yeah. It's such like a, it's, it, I mean, for a, for a comedy nerd, it's a great show. Cause you really like the inside world of, of up. You liked playing yourself in, in that. I did. It's so much easier to act when you can, you're given lines, but Judd lets you play with them a lot and put your own spin on it. And I felt like I was really natural. Like my acting was 
very natural on that show. Definitely. And then uh, your scene in King of Staten Island as well is fantastic with uh, with Robert Smigel. What was that experience like shooting that movie? Oh my God, one of the funniest people I've ever met in my entire life. I would be in the bathroom with him, like waiting for the scene to start. And I just would be crying because he's just, <laughs> he's so neurotic. I laughed so hard at that, like that whole, and he's so dry. That was amazing too, because it was with Judd and he let us improv. I have to tell you, I had to learn how to shoot a gun, two kinds yeah. of guns. And I'm like, this is so against everything, like who I am. I hate guns. I I have, oh God, it was just very weird. I mean, one of them was a shotgun. <laughs> like I, I, I just went all out. Yeah, you really did. <laughs> that scene was grueling to do because it was, so hot that day and there was air in the room yeah they had to keep everything covered because it would look like it was nighttime and stuff but it was in the middle of the day yeah that's funny Uh, that's that is a very crazy scene yeah robert smigel is so is so great as well so you're working on this new show um or developing this new show is the is the idea that you'll star in it as well or yeah and it's about my life i have two baby mamas it's hysterical I mean, I talk about it on stage, but I really, it's hilarious. I my, have a 14-year-old with my ex, Shari. I have three little ones with my current wife, Danielle. And we live in suburbia and deal with the whole visitation, divorce thing. You know, I live in an orthodox area. My mother's a therapist. My wife's a therapist. I mean, there's so many things. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of comedy there. Yeah, exactly. There's we The minute we told him, he's like, I get it. <laughs> I see where the comedy is. But I also made a movie, a documentary. I don't know if you know for FNS. Oh, no. Yeah. I executive produced and I'm in it about female comedians. So, oh, wow. Yeah. So that is coming out on FX early next year. And that's amazing. I got Kathy Griffin and Margaret Cho and Fortune and Eliza Schlesinger. Like they're all in the movie. It's great. Is it about the history of female comedians or what's the sort of, what's the gist of the movie? Yeah, some is about the history and some is, is a lot of it is following us and, and us talking about what its experience is being a female comedian. Yeah, that sounds great. Really, it's really great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll have to get maybe someone else who's in the movie on the, on the podcast to talk oh, about sure. that in, in January. Yeah. Yeah. Rachel's in it. Marina Franklin, um, Carmen Lynch, Nikki Glazer, you know, all my friends, Bonnie McFarland, they're all in the movie. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to that. Well, we end every episode of the podcast by asking comedians about another comedian who has made you laugh the hardest in, in your life. And I'm thinking, you know, about whether it's you know, at the comedy cellar, you know, in the hanging out with comics or, or just in your, in your life, um, as a comedian, who's, who's someone who comes to mind that really has made you laugh harder than, than anybody else. I have like a couple. That's okay. It can be a couple. Oh, thank you so much because (laughs) I don't want to make you choose live Robin Williams. I mean, literally just watching him at the cellar do an hour and improv with an audience is, was the craziest thing I've ever seen just because there was no material. Mm-hmm. And I, was, I saw him, you know, over and over, just do an hour. John Panette used to kill me. He was brilliant. Brewer makes me laugh. Jim Brewer. Oh my God. His stand-up is just, and offstage too. He just kills me. You know, Chris Stefano makes me laugh my ass. I mean, I, there's no time I'm with him. Even when we're texting, I'm laughing out loud. <laughs> there's just some people who are naturally funny. Yeah. I mean, you have a lot of funny people in your life, so you're, you're lucky in that way. Yeah. But the, <laughs> my idols are not stand-ups. They're Lucille Ball, Carol Burnett, Gilda Radner, John Belushi. Mm-hmm. 
Well, thank you so much for doing this. And uh, yeah, everyone should check out your your live show, um, Disgusting Hawk, yes. which is uh, on Thursday the 10th. And it seems like uh, that'll be really, really fun. So uh, thanks so much for talking with me. Yeah, thank you. It's Rush Ticks, R-U-S-H-T-I-X. That's where people can buy tickets. And it's, it's cheap. I think it's um, $15 or something for a ticket, but it's going to be something like you haven't seen. And uh, there's going to be some very special guests. And it, it's I, I'm excited about it. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks so much and uh, stay safe. Have a good one. And uh, hopefully we'll talk again sometime. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Thank you again to Jessica Kirsten. If you want to stream her new show, Disgusting Hawk, on Thursday, December 10th at 6 p.m. Pacific time, you can get tickets now at RushTix.com. We'll put a link in the description for this episode as well. If you haven't seen her Comedy Central special, Talking to Myself, definitely check that out. And you can subscribe to her podcast, Relatively Sane, wherever you get your podcasts. Also, are you a fan of this podcast? If so, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at LastLaughPod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.